Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. For more information about our church, visit EdenWorshipCenter.co. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Join us now as we study through the gospel of Mark, the first of the New Testament gospels to be written. Our prayer is that as you follow along in your Bible, the gospel will come alive in your heart and you will see Jesus more clearly. Open up with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to get there in just a little bit. So just kind of hold that place. While you're doing that, I want to just make mention of the fact that tomorrow is the 499th anniversary of the birth of the Protestant Reformation. October 17th, 15, or October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails the 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, uh, delivering them to the archbishop. But that door, it was more than just like, I'm going to make a a declaration and nail it to the wall. The door was like our Facebook. So it was was where uh, public posts were made, uh, upcoming events, uh, even Theological conversations were started and had back and forth. So uh, Luther is basically saying, let's have a conversation about this. And he nails 95 statements. That theses can just sound a little uh, lofty if you remember from school where you have to write like a headline, a thesis statement. So he has 95 of those. Uh, a couple examples. Number one is when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent. He willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. So it's not just repent once and then uh, do all these good works to earn your salvation, but our whole life is to be repenting of sin. Uh, Number 62 was the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel and the glory and the grace of God. And so Martin Luther comes in with all of these uh, messages to the church, his church. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, To his church. He wasn't saying let's start something different. He's saying let's take our church and reshape it back towards the scripture. And he argued that we've had too much focus on man, man's power, the church's power, the pope's power, and too little on the power of God to save. And so in his brash desire, now don't miss this, uh, Martin Luther was a brash man, uh, and part of the divide that exists 499 years later is because of his brashness, Uh, and yet God in his sovereignty chose him, kind of cool. His desire was, let's reform my church. Now, here's, here's where I think the church really erred. It was rather than saying, let's take a look at ourselves and our practice and our beliefs based on what the scripture says and reform to that. They did the opposite, and in fact, they kind of had to. Theologically, uh, the Roman Catholic Church had by this time already come to the understanding that we understand who God is, the truth revealed by, number one, the scriptures, and on an equal standing, the traditions and the teachings of the church, especially if it's from the Pope, uh, from the chair. And so they could not say, let's reform what we have taught you here to this, because then you actually have to say this is underneath that. And that that wasn't where they stood. And and Luther said, we need to go back to that. Well, instead of reforming their church, 
They actually called a council called the Council of Trent, which went on for a long time, got interrupted by a war, and they had to come back to it. Uh, Canon 12, so they had all these thesis statements in return to the things Luther had said. Canon 12 is this. By the way, uh, the Council of Trent and its edicts still stand for today. And uh, so this is still in effect. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sin for Christ's sake, or that it is confidence alone that justifies, let him be anathema or cursed. If you say that our faith is in Christ alone and his power alone to save, not based on anything that we can do or earn, you're to be cursed. And that still stands today. Now here's, to, to the glory of God, uh, 499 years later, there are men and women who are still standing to say we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, that we know through Christ alone, from the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Right, the five solas. Uh, we have them on the back wall back there. 499 years later, there are still people who are saying, this is what we live for, and this is what we will die for. But, I, but before, we, before we sink too deep into that, let's keep in mind that uh, the Catholic Church was aware of something that was very real. And that is, if we start saying that we're saved by faith alone, there's a chance that people might claim to have faith but never do anything along with it, and it's not a genuine saving faith. Guys, that's a real worry. That's why Luther's response was, genuine saving faith never is alone. So we're saved by faith alone, but that saving faith will never be alone. We will always do other things. Our other things just can't earn our standing before God. The other concern was, Luther, uh, if you translate the Greek into a readable language, which is what he did. He kind of went undercover, and he, uh, he was dressed as a monk hiding out in this monastery, translating in secret uh, the New Testament from Greek into the German. Uh, and one of his friends actually came to him, a guy named Erasmus of Rotterdam, and he says, if you do this, Luther, you might unloose a floodgate of iniquity. If people read this scripture and they don't know how to read this scripture, they don't know how to interpret this scripture, you might loose a floodgate of iniquity into the church. You might splinter the church. And guess what? Erasmus was right. right the church has been splintered for half a millennia. And that splinter is made up of all kinds of divisions in the church with different teachings and different beliefs, and some of them have been absolutely heretical. Here was Luther's response. Luther was convinced of the perspicuity of Scripture, which is one of my favorite words because perspicuity means the clear understanding of, only you can't understand the word perspicuity. That's awesome. Uh, He was convinced that the Scriptures were understandable and that the central message of salvation was so clear that even a child could understand it. He believed that those words were actually filled with salvation and communicated in the scripture so vitally important that it is worth setting the opportunity in front of people to take that and go astray because the power to save is in the gospel. And so Luther said, if a floodgate of iniquity is to be released, so be it. 
So be it, because the power of God doesn't rest in man's ability or the church's ability. It rests in the word of God alone. Good time to say amen. 500 years later, we still have the same problem. R.C. Sproul said this, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program or a methodology or a technique, anything and everything but that in which God has placed his power, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused in the scriptures. So would you stand together with me as we honor God's word? As you stand holding either in book form or in digital form this word of God, I want us to be aware this morning how many have died, how many have written these pages in their own blood that you could hold this in your hand. And so not only are we thankful to God for preserving his word, we are thankful to the men and women who gave their lives that we as well might have it. Mark chapter eight, verse one says, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people. And they set them before the crowd Verse seven says, and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that those also should be set before them and they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full and there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we find life and strength and power in the gospel. Lord, that has come at a very precious price to us that so often we do not count, that that there have been so many who have gone before in previous generations who laid down their lives that we could draw strength directly from your word. And so we pray this morning, God, would you let your word come alive inside of us? Let us count it as a precious gift to us. Holy Spirit, we ask you to make our hearts renewed our minds transformed by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we should start by asking ourselves, why are we getting the same basic story again? If you were here just a few weeks ago, you remember in chapter six, Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's almost the exact same setup. So first he feeds 5,000, now he's feeding 4,000, especially when we know that Mark is so brief, he's very concise, he's not interested in giving us every detail of Jesus' life and ministry, he's not even interested in giving them chronologically to us, why is he bothering to tell us this story? Mark and Matthew both list both the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, but Luke and John, those gospels, only list the feeding of the 5,000. So if Mark, the shortest of these letters, the most brief of these letters mentions it, why is he telling us about this again? 
Well, some have argued it's actually just one event. It, it was one feeding of, of one group of people, and when Matthew told it, when Mark told it, they kind of split it apart, and it, it's sort of like exaggeration, and they're really trying to make a point. We're not even going to talk about those people, because to make that argument, you have to say that the writers of the scriptures were either intentionally lying or unintentionally lying. Either way, we're undervaluing the scriptures and dismissing it, so... Uh, we're not even touching that one. That one's just off the table. Uh, some, I think, more reasonably have argued uh, that we're seeing this again because of the dullness of the disciples' hearts. That Jesus goes through all of these steps of feeding the multitude, and then they get in the boat, and they go to the other side, and they have a conversation with the Pharisees, uh, and then they don't get it. So he does it again. They feed the people, and they get into a boat, and they go to the other side, and they have a conversation. All the things just line up because, guys, you're not getting it. <sighs> we got to do it again. Maybe, but I kind of doubt it. I, I think there's actually a stronger answer, which is what we're going to look at this morning. Look at verse 1 in Mark 8. It says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered. Now, the first time, the feeding of the 5,000, Mark tells us specifically where they were. He says they were in this place, and he describes it. Remember, he says they even sat down on the green grass. It was really specific. And now, all he gives us was in those days. So if we're going to track that down, we've got to look back up. Remember, context is super important. Uh, chapter 7 has been telling us where they were in those days. They were in the area of Phoenicia and the Decapolis. It was a Gentile area. It was a pagan area. Hey, you remember the story of Jesus meeting the Syrophoenician woman who has the daughter who's demon-possessed and Jesus, like, insults her a little bit? Remember that? Uh, Jesus, my daughter is possessed by this demon. Can you cast this demon out? And Jesus goes, I'm not going to give the bread of the children to the dogs. That doesn't make sense. And she says, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs under the table. And so he has compassion on her, even though she wasn't part of his ministry. He said, I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he runs into the guy in the Decapolis area who's blind or who's deaf and dumb, and he has this weird sort of ritual thing that happens, and his ears are open, and he can speak. Well, the Decapolis is a region. It's kind of like a state. In fact, I think we have a picture of it here. It's the area in green right there. Uh, it was a league of 10 cities who weren't like right next to each other. They were a little bit spread out, but they said, we're going to function together as one unit for protection, for provision, uh, for governmental oversight. We're, we're going to be, in effect, a little state. I mean, everything in the Middle East is sort of super compacted, put together. So it's about 30 miles wide and, or tall and about 60 miles long. So 30 miles by 60 miles is about how big this area of the Decapolis is. It's predominantly Greek who moved there three, 400 years ago after Alexander the Great came through. And the disciples have a big problem as they're going through this place. And here's the problem. We think you're all out. This was, this was on the other side of the Jordan River. So Judea is over here and the Decapolis is over here. And Israel is up here and the Decapolis is over here. You're on the other side. You're not one of us. We're not even looking at you. We're not even thinking about you. We're passing through your territory, never once considering that God might have salvation for you. And so Jesus, after 
going through this whole exercise with the feeding of the 5,000, repeats it and brings them into a place where they had a racial prejudice against them that said, I think you're out to start with. John Piper says this, every aspect of the way that God views and saves sinners is designed to undermine racism and lead to a reconciled and redeemed humanity from every people in the whole world. That's the gospel. The gospel takes broken sinners separated from God. You once were this, you once were that, you once were this, but now you have been brought together. So Jesus does stick to his ministry. He he doesn't say, guys, from now on, look, we're just going to this area. This is an, an unreached area, and there's a need here. There actually was a significant need there, but Jesus doesn't change his ministry, but he does foreshadow that the Gentiles would be saved. It, that was not even on the radar of the Jewish disciples. It, it's hard for us to think like that, that Jesus' disciples, the other you know, Jewish leaders, we get it, right? Pharisees, we know they're bad guys. But disciples, well, no, we, we expect them to have compassion, but they didn't. They looked at these people and said, well, of course you're out. You're not like us. Jesus again, as he did the first time feeding the 5,000, is going to demonstrate the depth of his compassion for people. In the first account, right, the first feeding, there's a multitude, and he identifies their primary need as teaching. If you remember that from Mark chapter 6, they're out there, and he says these people need the teaching of God's word. They need the teaching of the gospel. Now, to make that happen, we're going to feed them. This time, they've already had that. They've been with him for three days. And they're ready to go home. So all he mentions is their physical need. The first time, he had compassion for people that were primarily Jewish. And this time, the Jews would have been the minority. They would have been the really small group amongst a lot of Gentiles. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. Now we can look at that. They've been with us for three days and go, (laughs) what kind of irresponsible creeps were these people? Come on, isn't that how we think? We sort of, we've adopted this evolutionary mindset that says we're constantly getting better and better and smarter and smarter and more advanced. And so we look back at people in Jesus' time and we just sort of shake our heads like, I wouldn't have done that. Right? Isn't that what we do? Right? Just to be honest. Uh, to give you an example, let, let's bring that up. There, there's the Decapolis. Uh, this, is, this is roughly the size. Go ahead and hit the next one. Let's make it local here. It's roughly the same size if you go from South Bend to Mongo, the end of LaGrange County, right? Following along the state line, straight south down to Kendallville, across to Bremen, and back up to South Bend. Right in the middle there is tiny little Honeyville, tiny little Eden Worship Center in the middle. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a church outing, okay? So today, after the service, let's not do it today because we can't plan for that. Uh, Tomorrow, we want you to meet here. We're going to walk to South Bend. That's not even all the way across. Jesus said some came from a far way. We're going to walk to South Bend as families, as a group. How long do you think that's going to take us? A while? Because there's a really good teacher there. And when we get there, he's better than we thought. In fact, he just might be the Messiah. And so it comes down to it, and we got, we got people like Destin who's going, seriously, we should stay. 
we should say, his family's like, Destin, let's go. This is just a Sunday morning, right? But it's, let's go. And it, we, we all come to this consensus, like, no, we're staying. This guy is the Messiah. We have to hear this, even if it means we go home hungry. We're not talking about ignorant, irresponsible people. We're talking about people who've made a rather significant decision to follow after Jesus and hear what he has to say, even if it means I have to walk a long ways home hungry. Are you tracking with me? All right, this is actually telling us about who these people are, even though they're outside of the Jewish community. Right? They're not in. They are Gentiles for the most part. Some came from a long ways away. Well, the details that we find in the rest of the story, they're actually pretty similar to when he feeds the 5,000. There's some bread, there's some fish. The fish are kind of an afterthought in this story. He has the people sit down. Uh, he, br- he blesses it, he breaks it, he hands it out, and there's enough left over. There's some differences, though. Uh, one of my favorite, and this is a similarity, but I, I just love this, I gotta mention it. Uh, the disciples ask the exact same question. Where on earth are we gonna get bread in the middle of nowhere? Jesus, what is wrong with you? All right, as if they had forgotten the last time. Uh, It makes you kind of wonder if they said it and went like, yeah, here we go. (laughs) Let's see what he does with this one. Um, There's only seven pieces of bread this time. A few fish. Now, everybody take a deep breath with me. Don't go nuts over this, please, okay? Let's just be normal people. Let's not go crazy. But Mark gives us some numbers in here that are pretty important to the way Jews think about things. And I'm saying don't go nuts because here's what we like to do nowadays. We like to find numbers and their meanings and significance and then we look them up and we find all these codes in the Bible and then we know the secret message that's in there and we turn into weirdos. Good talk. All right. So we're going to talk about a little bit of Jewish numerology here. Don't freak out. If I, if I see a single person posting some Hebrew end of times numerology on Facebook, I'm going to come to your house. No, I'm not, I'm not even coming to your house. I'm just going to write you off as a human being. Okay, so uh, in the Jewish thought, though, numbers were important. They, they actually meant something. They were significant. Hopefully by the end, uh, I'll be able to demonstrate a little bit that they're actually significant to us, but we don't, we don't think about it quite like this. The number seven symbolized perfection, completeness. It was the number that represented God's creation in the world. In seven days, God made the heavens and the earth. It, there was a finished completeness that seven all throughout the Bible represents God's finished work. The number six represented weakness or incompleteness. It was the number of man. It's the number of sin. Uh, it got then applied to like Satan, and so it, but it really had to do with man. Let's not blame the devil for the fact that we're big sinners. The number 12, we're only gonna talk about a couple of these. Uh, 12 shows up a whole bunch in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, the the people of God who are under the old covenant that God made for salvation. And then in the New Testament, it's talking about the 12 apostles who represent, they're the fathers of the church. So they're the completion of all of the New Testament church. So in the Old Covenant, it's the completion of God's people, all the tribes. In the New Testament, it's the completion of the whole church. Are you tracking with me here? Right, so these numbers show up, and when they do, they would have got it right away. Right, so we're not going to build a whole theology on it. We're just going to go, okay, I, there was something here. The number 1,000 
generally just meant a lot. Uh, Now, we like to take a thousand and make it mean something super specific, especially if we're talking about the end times. Uh, But the reality is uh, it mostly just meant beyond number or uncountable, countless, a lot, okay? So now if you add numbers together or you stick them next to each other or you multiply them, uh, it sort of increases the significance and adds to the symbolic meaning of it. Let me give you just a couple examples before I lose you on this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, the living creatures, the elders encircling the throne, numbering, watch them stick them together, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. That literally, that, that's a real number. That's 100 million is what that is. But he's not pointing to 100 million. He's not going, right? He's going, there was a lot. Are you with me? Uh, saying worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation chapter 14, verse one, we see another one of these numbers that makes people trip up. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You also see this in Revelation chapter seven and it tells us the 144,000 actually came from the 12 tribes of Israel. Although one of the tribes is missing and one of the half tribes is inserted in its place. 12,000 from this, 12,000 from this, 12,000 from this, all through the 12 tribes. And so we've made some mistakes. When we tried to be super literal with these numbers, we end up going, here's what he's describing. He's describing the end time salvation of the Jews. That in God's timing, in his dispensations, he reveals himself to the Jews, and then it shifts to the time of the Gentiles and the church, and at the end, it's going to shift back, and this great salvation comes to the Jews. Have you heard that before? You don't want to admit it, but you've heard it before. Okay, good. Uh, So this great salvation, except I want us to think about numbers and then ask if this is actually a great salvation. 12,000 from every tribe of Jew equaling 144,000, 144,000, and we're calling that a great revival of the Jewish people. Today, on the earth, there are 15.5 million Jews alive. At rough numbers, uh, if, if you took Indiana and either Illinois or Ohio, it doesn't matter, either one, and you put those two states together, every person living in either one of those two state groups, you have around 15 to 16 million people. So all of Chicago, all of Illinois, everybody in Indianapolis and all of Indiana, uh, that would be the total number of Jews on the earth. And God, in his great salvation, saves three quarters of Elkhart County. Elkhart County has 200,000 people living in it, and God saves just under three quarters of them. And we're like, great salvation. No, that stinks. Are you with me? Not your heads. Yeah, that stinks. That is not a great salvation. Uh, he's not giving us literal numbers here. We could be even dumber if we wanted to, and we could be the Jehovah Witnesses who back in 19... Yeah, I just said Jehovah Witnesses are dumb, didn't I? Dang it. Bill, if you hadn't laughed, I wouldn't have thought about that. 1930... But here's the good news. There's good news for them. In 1935, they figured out this number's them. Like that they will have a hundred. Now, this is easy. When you got like eight people in a room, you're like, someday we'll have 144,000. This is us. We'll be, and we're the only ones who are going to go to heaven. Well, unfortunately for them and for us, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses have grown to 8.2 million people. 
which is unfortunate because they're a cult, but who don't believe that Jesus is God. By the way, if they don't believe Jesus is God, we can say cult, right? All right, so don't go home like, oh, he's so judgmental. (laughs) Spare me, all right? Uh, (laughs) Here's the bad news. If these wackos show up on your door, right, and try and give you a a watchtower, uh, you can ask them a couple questions like, number one, is Jesus God? And they're gonna be like, isn't it good for brothers to share the word of God together? Yeah, it is good, but we're not brothers. Do you believe Jesus is God? Uh, No. Right, with me? Uh, The other thing is, uh, what happens to the rest of you other than the 144,000? Because that hasn't changed. They go to heaven. Well, the other, let me get the number right here, 8,056,000 Jehovah Witnesses get to go to heaven, but it's like an earth version of heaven. So they don't actually get to go to heaven. And so you can ask them, is Jesus there? Well, no, he's in heaven. Okay, we're done. Right, so that, that kind of, I think both of those are giant mistakes. Or we could just go, these numbers are symbolic. The Jewish people understood these numbers to mean something. Remember I said it was all these 12 tribes and 12,000 from each of those? 12 represented what? Completion of the Old Testament tribes, right? So 12,000 of those were combining two things. Now, Revelation is in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Help me out. New Testament, good, you guys are so smart. So he says there's these Old Testament tribes, there's 12 of them, and then he points to the completion of the new covenant, right, the full church, the the 12 apostles, and he takes that times a 1,000, so perfection, unlimited, and then he combines them, Old Covenant and New Covenant together, 12 times 12 equals 144,000, the perfect, complete number of all of God's covenant with his people for all time, God saves his people. That's way better than going, good grief, I hope I'm not 144,000 and one. <laughs> All right. I don't, I like, I threw my notes on the ground in the middle of that. I have no idea. Like, I think the sermon's over. I think we're done. Here, here's the thing. If you read your Bible as a straightforward revealing of who God is and not as some uh, secret manual that only the extra super spiritual and revealed will understand, I think you're gonna be good. I think you're actually gonna be safe if you don't turn to all of those things. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. The things that are essential to salvation are so exceedingly simple that no child needs sit down in despair of understanding these things which make him peace. Christ crucified is not a riddle for the sages, but plain truth for plain people. It's true meat for men, but it's also milk for babies. There is something about the gospel that for the rest of our lives will on some level confound us and we will say, God, I will never, I will never dig to the depths of this great salvation. And there's something so simple and so understandable about the gospel that our kids right now in these classrooms are hearing it and their hearts can understand it and receive it. That's good news. That's awesome. Now, for some of you, you're, you're looking at the, uh, the illustration of the 144,000 going, yeah, that wasn't simple and straightforward at all. You told us to read our Bible simple and straightforward and then you gave us some weird math problem. We don't think like that. Uh, On some level, we still do. We're just not familiar with that one. So let me give you a couple. Go ahead and throw those numbers up. 247 and 643. Do those mean anything to you? 
kind of like the 144,000 doesn't mean a lot to us because we're not in that culture in that context. Now go to the next one, see if this helps. The first one, 24-7, anybody ever use that before? Yeah, you use it all the time, like 24-7. Come on, people, stick with me, right? All of a sudden, that number has meaning. In fact, it's two different things put together. You have 24 hours in seven days, but we don't just mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? No sleep, no nothing. We actually understand those two things put together mean we do this a lot. With me? Now, the second one's a bit more tricky. I hope some of you have got this already. Six, four, three. Does anybody have it off the bat already? You want to guess? Yeah? June 4th, birthday for third. <laughs> June 4th, birthday for Brit the third. Close. Well, we'll just, that's good for you guys. Uh, I'll give you a hint. This one, now, remember, if you are in this context and you, you are familiar with this, these numbers make sense to you. That, that's what I'm arguing from the New Testament. These numbers made sense to the people who heard them. Some of you saw this happen last night a few times while watching the game. Come on, baseball people, help me out. What, what is 6-4-3, Carrie? It's a double play, right? Shortstop to the second baseman to the first baseman. It's the code for a double play. Uh, each one of those, meaning, it, those numbers have meaning, right? Each one of those is a different person, and we can track where the ball went and the order that it went, and at the end, we know it means double play. Now, if you don't know baseball, you look at that and you go, I could have stared at that all day long. It must be some secret riddle. Amen. That's what we do with the Bible. We, we stare at it. We go, I'm, oh, I just don't get it, except the people in that context got it which is why we can't read the Bible in our context. We actually have to read it in the context that's written. Does that make sense? All right, good. So now, everybody take another deep breath and look at the person next to you. Just look at them and go, stop it. Don't get weird. All right, good. Good talk. Uh, When Jesus feeds the five, now why did we go to all that that trouble? When Jesus feeds the 5,000, anybody remember how many baskets were left over? Seven's the second time. Twelve. He's with predominantly Jewish people, and how many baskets got left over? By the way, when Mark tells us that twelve baskets got left over, the word basket he used, he's writing in Greek, but he uses the Hebrew uh, Jewish word for basket there. Now, he's dealing with the 4,000 primarily with Gentiles, People who the disciples knew had no shot of salvation and how many baskets are left over? Seven. This number of God's completeness, that God's finished work. They didn't even know God had started a work with them. And by the way, when he uses the word basket here, he doesn't use the Hebrew one that he did just two chapters before. He uses the Greek word. In fact, the Greek word can be a basket that's way bigger because in Acts chapter 9, when the disciples are escaping down the wall, they let them down the wall with the rope. It was these, this Greek basket, which was two, uh, two pieces of wood with this net in between. It was big enough to carry a person. In other words, this one could have been way, way bigger than the 12 that were left over, over here. And so there's, there's a symbolism that's going on. I don't think we get weird about that stuff. And I'll just, I'll be honest with you, I tried to come up with a good way to just completely skip even talking about that uh, because people get weird with that. 
And then I, I told uh, Jason earlier in the week I was talking to him, I'm like, you know, for years we've talked about uh, preaching verse by verse forces us to talk about things that we don't want to talk about. So when we get to one, it would be bad if I skipped something because I don't want to talk about it. So there it is. Anyways, I I don't think that what Jesus was doing, that's what Mark is doing in telling us the story. Jesus is actually pointing to the fact that the disciples have a problem when they look at this group of people. And he's telling them to start thinking about and relating to people based on the gospel, not on your religious or racial presuppositions. Because Jesus cares for and provides for all that are his own. One of the things liberal wings of Christianity do with things like this is, is they say Jesus didn't ask them anything here. He, he didn't ask them what they, what they think, what they believe, where they stand on these things. He just met their physical needs, and so we should do the same. We shouldn't worry about what people think or believe, that all, all those theological things are secondary, just meet their physical needs. And then they shake their heads at the church and go, oh, those religious people who just hate everyone who's not like them. Richard Niebuhr, in his book, The Kingdom of God in America, and this is super ironic because he was, uh, he was one of the guys in this last century who was writing what would be a defense of the social gospel. He's one of these liberals, but he's pointing to this could be a problem because we could actually preach a gospel that removes Christ. Here's what he said was the danger, that we end up preaching a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That is the danger of the liberal social gospel that we divorce Jesus from the cross. That's a danger because Jesus consistently, number one, called sinners to repentance. Didn't he? Throughout all of his ministry, he he doesn't bypass sin. He may forgive it. He may be merciful, but he calls them to repentance. Number two, he called snakes and hypocrites everybody who preached a different gospel that pointed towards man and not towards God. It's interesting how many times he calls the Pharisees to repent. If you want a little scary message, go ahead and try and find how many times he does that. And the third thing is he was moved with compassion on those around him. Consistently in Jesus' ministry, we see his call to repentance. We see his calling of false doctrine and a compassion on those around him. Now, the people around him, the, the social gospel would just say, just, just anybody. I think we've already kind of seen through that map thing. These guys weren't just anybody. These guys had come a long way to follow after Jesus, to hear what he had to say. That's very different from the people who reject Jesus and reject the gospel and reject Christianity and then demand that Christianity and the gospel accept them. And if you don't accept them, you must hate them. You must be a terrible person. That's not who these people were at all. Galatians chapter 6. So we can't, we, can't, we can't preach the social gospel from this passage, but there are places that remind us that God does have compassion on the world. Galatians six ten says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to, help me out, everyone. Especially to those who are within the household of faith. I love that word, especially. We have, a, we have a call as Christians to love this world. We have a priority on those to whom God has joined us to. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, Make sure that no one repays evil for evil. Always pursue what is good for one another and for 
all people. Again, you see the priority. For those to whom God has joined you, for those to whom God has called to himself, Christians are commanded to, good, to do good to all people. If we ask the question why, it's because they're made in the image of God. They are image bearers of God even though they reject him. And so our response to people in need is meant to reflect how God through the gospel relates to us. That doesn't mean we just pour out things on everybody because God does not do that to us, does he? Or else Garth Brooks wouldn't write songs like, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Because in his mercy, he doesn't give us what we demand of him. Aren't you grateful for that? It does mean that he has compassion upon us. Psalm 68 verse five says, he is the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home and he leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Now if we just stopped right there, it sounds like God's just super nice to everybody, right? That very last part of that verse, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Psalm 146, verse nine says, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Church, listen to me super clear. There are people in this world who God is actively working to thwart their plans. Not necessarily because he hates them. It just might be to bring him to repentance. Because if you look at your life, I know if I look at my life, I can see where God completely shipwrecked my plans and how he's done it again and again and again. And it's not because he hated me. It's because as a father, he loves me and is correcting me and bringing me to repentance. But listen, church, there's a blessing that comes from being close to that that we miss if we're not. One of the most popular things to say nowadays is I don't have to go to church to be a Christian True, I agree. Just the fact that I don't come to church, that doesn't make me a non-Christian. True, I agree. You can also say the opposite, just because you come to church doesn't make you a Christian, right? And yet here's, here's the problem with that statement. We're arguing about the wrong thing. If they said this, just because I come to church doesn't mean I miss out on all the blessings of being in church, we would go, yeah, it kind of does. Because there's something that happens in connection with God's people. Those blessings that come to us are part of being this household of faith. Galatians 6.10, do good especially to those who are within this household of faith. Who's the household of faith? The church? Which church? This church? That church? The one over there? All of them? So like do good, especially to everyone who's ever gone to church in their life. And you're right back to, I think we're talking about everyone again. At least in LaGrange County. Right? There's, there's a decreasing circle of priority that comes here as we are called to do good to all, we're called to do good to God's people, and yet God has joined us with a really specific group of people, hasn't he? People who know you, who know what you're going through, if you've told them, <laughs> right? Uh, who, as much as you have opened up and shared with them, they can connect to your life, only here's what we do all the time. We don't Connect. We don't actually join ourselves to that body, but there's something inside of us as Christians that longs for that, and so we don't join it. We're kind of just out here on the periphery, and then when it doesn't happen, we go, I think the church may have let me down. Guys, there's a blessing that we miss when we're not plugged into a local congregation. You guys need to hear that. 
I think the church in general needs to hear that. If you're not, listen, listen, super careful. If you're not plugged in to a local congregation, that is, by the way, way more than just showing up on a Sunday morning. Most people just, like, they they think they're there because they've showed up on a Sunday morning. You can show up and sneak in five minutes late, and right as the service is ending, you sneak out. You never have to talk to a single person. Let me just say you're not connected, and you, you never will be, let alone people who aren't here. If that's... If that's you, eventually, listen, this is tough, but listen to it, eventually you will feel that separation and loss. Now, it's not, it's not the weird, oh, I really miss them. I just miss, like, getting up early Sunday morning when I've stayed up way too late Saturday night. Uh-oh, I just miss that. Um, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when the rubber hits the road and you go, why aren't they here? The rubber hits the road and you go, I don't think anyone cares that you will feel that. And it's not because you're not a Christian. It's not because you're not loved. It's because you are missing the blessing of fellowship, encouragement, yes, even correction, and bearing one another's burdens because we need each other. Did you hear that, church? We need each other. Now, that's, that's one side And by the way, that's all the farther I'm going to go with that side because I think that side's super selfish. All we've talked about is how this affects me and how I get blessed and what I get out of it. Let's just shift from that completely. God has called you to be an ambassador, a witness for Christ. That demands that we need each other. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but you will receive Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In, remember I said you have this decreasing circle of uh, accountability and blessing one with another. Once we're there, God wants to use us to reach out first where we are and then that what surrounds us and then surrounds that and then to the whole world. So he says you're gonna start right where you are in Jerusalem and then to the area of Judea and then the area that's next to that and then to the whole world. The church is called to testify in word and deed to the gospel and that starts with our inner circle and progresses to the whole world. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody know what the Greek word for witness is? Destin just said it. One of the consequences of being a witness for Jesus Christ, especially in the first few centuries, was that it became so associated with suffering, persecution, and death that when we hear the Greek word martyr, we don't think of witness giving a witness testimony in court. We think of someone who will suffer and die for what they believe. Because being this kind of martyr, and Jesus goes, now now read this again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's a way different message for today, isn't it? That's not this little selfish message. Why doesn't the people in church take care of me? They must not care about my feelings. The truth is God has called you to die to your comfort and die to your feelings and go and preach the gospel to all of the world, declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord, making disciples of all the nations. And by the way, it's gonna cost you everything that you have. That's a different focus of a church. That's a different focus of believers. And so I wanna ask us as we wrap this up, Do we have that kind of compassion for this world? 
We love to talk about how compassionate we are for the needs of people. And yet there were, there were men and women and families throughout the centuries who said, our family will literally, our family, not just, not just me, but my wife and my children, we will literally go and die because our hearts are so moved with compassion that these people hear the gospel. These are the same people. Remember, we're back to Jesus' problem with the disciples. We don't even think these people have a chance because they're out. They're not like us. And Jesus says, I don't just want to save Jewish people. I want to save all the people of this world. His gospel is for everyone. Except here's the really sad part. 499 years later, do we still have that truth and love for the gospel? I mean, Martin Luther nailed that thing to the door and his life went nuts after that. The church went nuts after that. Many of his friends, the the people he was teaching uh, in seminary, were burned at the stake in the center of their hometown because of that. Do we have that kind of drive for truth and compassion that people have to hear, they have to know? We're willing to risk our lives to stand for the truth. Or has our motivation of compassion been displaced with our zeal for comfort? Man, hear that one more time. Has your motivation of compassion, as you look at a dying world, as you look at a world that is literally perishing in sin without someone declaring the gospel, is that motivation of compassion been displaced in your life because you have a real zeal, but it's not a zeal for the word of God or the kingdom of God that Jesus says, a zeal for my father's house consumes me. It's actually a zeal for your own comfort, for your own ease, The part we would never say at the end of that is the rest of the world can go to hell. Church, we have to start with us. Worship team, if you guys want to come up. So tomorrow marks the tipping point in our remembrance of the Reformation. It wasn't the beginning of it, though. It was sort of like it's been building, building, building. There were, there were men who had come before and now Martin Luther is this brash young priest who just sort of flips the switch. There was a guy who died about 130 years before Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the wall named John Wycliffe. Many of you are familiar with Wycliffe Bible translators. We support a couple missionaries who are with Wycliffe Bible translators. Uh, he died in 1384 and he challenged the Roman church. Remember, the Roman church was his church. We, we, we think like we're 500 years later, like there was Protestant and Catholic. There was no Protestant and Catholic. There was just the church. There was one church. So he goes to his church and says, look, we have to, have to, have to get back to the word of God. We have to let the scripture dictate what we do and who we are. And so to do that, we have to find that in the word of God in the scripture. And he's, he's the first guy to ever translate the Bible into English. And for those of us who are English speakers, this is pretty huge for us. He spends his whole life doing this. Uh, by the way, most of his translation stuff became foundational for everything that would come after. What you have in your hand today is because John Wycliffe worked really hard. He planted the seed of this here. And he died 
without getting to be a martyr. So do you know how much he was hated for this? 40 years after his death, the Roman church dug him up and drug his bones to the center of the town and burned his bones 40 years after his death as a heretic. That's how much he was hated for translating the word of God into a language that people could read because it's dangerous when people have God's word in their hand. Now, I'm, I'm not here to point fingers at history or this or that. I, I'm here to tell us we stand in that same danger. We have a danger of looking to ourselves and our traditions and our beliefs and not looking to the word of God. John Calvin said this, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of the life. It cannot be grasped by reason or memory only, but is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of your heart. So my question as we respond to the Lord this morning in taking communion is, has that been your story? Has the gospel, has the word of God so penetrated your heart that it has taken hold of your soul? It has been revolutionary to you? I mean, every week we come and we celebrate that God has joined us into his family, that God has invited us as sons and daughters to his table. And yet there's a real chance that we might just, for some, be fooling ourselves. Because we've, we've given mental assent, yes, I believe this is true, but we've demonstrated time and time again with our life, I don't actually believe this is true. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. You cannot be partly a Christian. You're either dead or you're alive. You're either born or you're not born. Because it's not enough to believe in God. It's not enough to just say, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus is God. That's great. The Bible also says the demons believe that Jesus is God and they, they know it's so true that they shudder when they think about it and they're not saved. There's a surrender of the life that happens for a believer when we believe that Jesus is God. And so we come we remember when Jesus, with his disciples, on the night he was betrayed, and he takes the bread and he breaks it, and he gives thanks, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup after supper, and he says, this is the cup of a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the body and the blood of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discernment of the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's stand together. I want to give you just a moment to examine your own heart. And I, I, want, to, I want to just throw this in here, mostly because I, uh, in my zeal to read that, uh, transposed a couple lines in there. 
And it says, anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup in an unworthy manner, rather than eats the body and blood of the Lord. So hopefully some of you who are non-transubstantiationists caught that. Uh, here's, here's the reality. There's, there's people in every denomination that calls Jesus Christ Lord, including the Catholic Church, who are saints saved by the power of the risen Savior. Are you with me? Just as much as there are people who come to Eden Worship Center who have their whole lives been playing games with God and are not saved by Christ the risen Savior. You, you know all the right words. You know when to stand and sit and sing. But you've never actually made him the Lord of your life. You may, you may even believe that Jesus is God but that has no impact on the way you live your life. And this morning, I want to again call you to salvation. Salvation is not this list of works that we do or even a list of works that God gives us grace to do. Salvation is Christ working on our behalf. And so if there's even a twinge in your heart that goes, I think that's me, then right now is the moment of surrender. To say, Jesus, I really have believed that you are God. I really have believed that you are Savior, but I really have demanded that I be the God of my own life, and today I surrender that. Because salvation doesn't happen because you say the right thing or pray the right prayer. It, it's happening because God won't give up on you, and he keeps calling you. So I want to challenge you as we sing together, as we respond. If you are a Christian, come to the table. There's wine over here, there's grape juice over there. Come to the front, take the elements, go back, and we'll take them together. If you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I don't think that's actually me. Maybe, maybe you know you're a Christian, but you've been walking in willful sin that you know the Bible has commanded you not to do. I encourage you, don't come. Don't be this person who eats and drinks condemnation and judgment on themselves. But man, if you're that person who maybe has been in church your whole life and yet your life, as you look at it, not as I look at it, as you look at it, demonstrates I have never walked with God for real. Let this be the moment. Let this be the morning that you go from death to life, from not born to born. So as we sing together, would you come? Let's just pray. Lord, I, I pray this morning for salvation to be your work. God, it's not ours. We can, we can say the right things, show up in the right places, and yet, God, you alone are our salvation. You alone are our hope. And so I pray, God, for my friends here this morning, uh, people that I have known and loved for a long time, I pray for the ones who have been struggling with assurance of salvation, who you have saved them and made them your own, and yet they have been struggling to believe that's true. God, would you show them your closeness this morning? And God, I pray exactly the opposite. For those who have always kind of felt like they're a Christian because they grew up in the church, but they're not, I pray that, God, you would show them the great separation between you and them. Not so that you can make them feel bad about who they are or where they are, but God, I pray that they would see themselves in light of the gospel and then run to a risen Savior who stands with arms open wide. 
Because, Lord, you literally are our only hope. You're our only salvation. And we look to you, God. So we pray, call us to yourself and be glorified in Jesus' name.